Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. Let me just pray for us uh, to center us for a second. God, I just ask that you would be the clear and loudest voice in the room. Anything that's from me in this would just kind of fall away, and anything that's from you would take root and change us, all of us. So we just, we're here and available. Not that you need an invitation, but we want you to know that our posture is open today. In your name, Jesus, amen. Speaking of old people, in 1994, I was a sophomore in college. How many of you were not born in 1994? That's awesome. So let me take you back to an an era long gone by where no one had a personal computer in college, no one had a phone in their pocket, you had to like get messages in your dorm room, hopefully your dorm mate wrote them down, like this is what I grew up in. And as a real culture shock for some of you, I know certainly for my children, we didn't have streaming of like movies. We had a thing called Blockbuster. It was extraordinary. This little blue card in my pocket gave me the power to watch movies that were seven months old. Not new releases, but seven months old, I could watch a movie. My roommate at the time, still my best friend today, his name is Herb. And Herb and I, we had a dorm room, and we, uh, because we couldn't afford Blockbuster very often, because that was like four bucks, which to poor college students was a, like a sacrifice, we had four movies in our room. I don't remember one of them. One of them was an NBA All-Star something that featured Michael Jordan, and we were in Chicago, so that just made sense in the mid-90s. We had a movie called Days of Thunder with Tom Cruise. I can quote almost the entire movie. I won't. And the fourth movie we had was Jurassic Park. We watched each of those movies at least 30 times in that year because we didn't want to spend the money to go to Blockbuster and we were bored, which happens in college. We didn't have gaming consoles, so we're like, let's watch Jurassic Park again. I am intimately familiar with all of Jurassic Park. (laughs) There's a scene in Jurassic Park when the tension really builds, and this is a a bit of a spoiler alert, but I feel like there's a 30-year statutes of limitation on being mad about spoilers. (laughs) So if you haven't seen Jurassic Park yet, it's not on me. for ruining it for you. There's a scene toward the end of the movie where the computer system is down and they're all about to get eaten by dinosaurs unless they reboot the system. And so they come to this moment, I think it's Samuel L. Jackson is there and he says, hold on to your butts, which is still a line I say to my kids whenever we're pulling out into traffic. It's just stuck with me. Um, He says, hold on to your butts and he turns off the computer system. reboots the computer system. And if it doesn't come back online, they're all going to get eaten by dinosaurs. Again, sorry for the spoiler. It comes back on. But they have to go turn on the power at another place where lots more people are about to get eaten by dinosaurs. So it doesn't end perfect for everyone. But there's this moment, the tense moment in the whole movie is this moment where you're waiting to see if the little cursor comes back on. Did the reboot work? And I feel like the essence of the text that we're going to look at today is asking about a reboot. I think it's Paul's words almost 2,000 years ago to the church in Ephesus in the first century. It's 
as applicable to us today in the church, especially the American church, to ask us the question, are we willing to take what we thought was the way things were, take the risk of hitting reboot, acknowledging that we're not okay, and seeing what God might do? That's the essence of Ephesians chapter two. I'll be honest, we could spend months on this short little book. It is gold for understanding God's heart for us. And so I'm gonna try in the next two hours, because that's how long Melissa says you guys do messages. <laughs> no, it'll be like 25 minutes, sorry. I'm gonna try in like 25 minutes to unpack a very complex 10 verses of scripture in a way that helps us understand what it might look like to reboot the operating system for us and collectively as a faith today. Now, I'll start, and this is always important to me, if only a few of you were around so many years ago, context is everything when understanding the Bible, right? This is an amazing book that was not written in English and was written somewhere between 2,000 and 8,000 years ago, depending on which part of it you're reading. So to understand it, we, it is not a face value book. It is a context book, super important. So we're going to dive into the context for just a minute because it helps us understand. If you really want to rally up the white nationalists, remind them that Jesus never spoke a word of English, right? Like, never. He didn't ever say English words. So when we understand this text, we have to go, okay, great. Half of it was written in Hebrew. Half of it was written in Greek. What does that mean for our face value understanding now? It means context is everything. We can't just read a verse and go, okay, I know what that means. If we did, we would live very strange lives. Just read the Old Testament a little bit. I'm, only, I'm actually right now on my fifth time through reading it in its entirety because it's a very different experience than when you just grab the stuff that works for your uh, value system. And when you see the arc of the story, it provides enormous context. I want to ask us to go there for just a minute today because I think it's so important. If this spurs some thinking in you, some curiosity in you, I would highly recommend the book Blue Parakeet by Scott McKnight. Uh, he is a professor at Northern Seminary. Is that where you're going? Oh, my gosh. He is a fantastic theologian. I highly recommend. He teaches here. Oh, he's amazing. Amazing dude. This is one of the best contextualizing of scripture. It's, it's called hermeneutics when you go to and pay a lot of money to sit in a classroom. But that's really what this is about is how do you interpret scripture, you know, and again, some cases an 8,000-year-old text into something that means something for us today. I highly recommend that book. It's fantastic. One of the things he talks about in there, which I, I appreciate his transparency, is he says, he just acknowledges we pick and choose when we read the Bible. No one applies the whole Bible. Thank goodness. Have you read Leviticus? Some weird stuff in there about animal sacrifice. Like, no one applies the whole Bible. We pick and choose based on a value system. And I am just acknowledging to you today, I have a hierarchy of interpretation. I'm just going to come out and tell you what it is. I know some pastors don't do that, and then they act like they know what it says. I'm just going to tell you, I have a hierarchy, and it goes like this. At the top of my hierarchy are the words and life of Jesus. So I read everything, even the Old Testament, through the filter of Jesus. I saw in the back for the kids, you have the Jesus storybook Bible, like my favorite Bible on the planet. Because it takes even the Old Testament, and it says at the end of each story, these amazing stories that are so cool, it says, but what is, how do we see this and read this through the filter of Jesus? Because that should be how we read scripture, in my opinion. 
So one in the hierarchy is Jesus' words and interactions. The two, number two filter for me is the first uh, application. This would be the book of Acts. So Jesus is on this earth walking around. The first stories we have right after he leaves are what happened in the book of Acts. Luke, who was sort of a historian, very good writer, very detailed, wrote the book of Acts to help us understand how they applied the teachings of Jesus first thing. So I think that, based on the relationship to Jesus, is very helpful for understanding. The third for me, again, my subjective opinion, is the the letters that Paul wrote to the first century churches around the world. Because, again, he's applying this first knowledge from Jesus, and he's correcting churches. Churches inherently need correction. We get in groupthink, we make mistakes, and the letters to the churches and the letters in Revelation, which are super cool that John wrote, they basically tell the church, you've got to do better and different, and let me tell you how. So think of this. It took not even one century for the church to get off track from Jesus. How off track do you think we can get? Especially if we're not contextualizing and going back and trying to live into the text. So that's my hierarchy. And so you can imagine when I get to teach out of Ephesians, this is like number two for me in my tears. I think this section of scripture is incredibly important for our life and our application of God. So I want to ask a favor. I know Melissa just read it. I want to reread it, and I want to ask you to consider two things. So if you have a Bible, take it out. I don't even know if people use Bibles anymore. Probably on your phone. Take your phone out. Read along on there. And I want to ask you to consider two themes. I want, things. I want you to listen for themes in these 10 verses. And I want you to listen for ideas that pop in your head and make you think, I want to know more. Like, what gives me pause in this text? So here it goes. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Just so you know, this transgressions and sins, one is talking more about commission, like the things we commit, and one is talking more about omission, the things we just don't do, right? Both can be equally wrong and broken and messed up and sinful. So we're talking about not just things we do, but even the omission side, commission and omission, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the rulers of the kingdom of the air. That sounds weird, right? Kingdom of the air. Scott McKnight hits on this beautifully, uh, as does John Stott, and we'll get into him in a minute too, where he talks about this section of the Bible, this section of Ephesians chapter 2, is really telling us what we default to if given freedom in our nature versus what we can be with God's grace. So when he's talking about the kingdom of the air and all this, it's really what the, it's some old language for our natural selves, kind of what we default to without focus and intentionality and effort. I know, again, it can sound weird. So the things of the air, uh, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were uh, nature deprived of, of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming age he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. 
And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So I ask you to think through two things. The first is what are the themes you hear? And the second is what gives you pause. And I know this is weird in church because you're supposed to just listen to a lecture, but I actually want to hear from you. What are the themes you heard and what are the things that give you pause? Go ahead and say something. Yeah, it, it repeats, for by grace you have been saved, right? Paul's not careless with his words. He is intentionally reminding us, just to be clear, where your salvation, where your saving comes from, it is grace alone. Yeah, great point. That's twice in there. What else? Life. What was it? Life. Life. Yeah. Kind of the, both opposing ideas. Like, we can choose life or we can choose death, right? And there are some real key ways that we can choose life in this text. Yeah. Great. What else? I'll just call on you then. No, I, mean, I won't. Yeah. What does that mean, right? Yeah. Yeah, what if salvation, uh, what if like eternal presence with God is not something that's just after death? What if we are already living in a, pre- we have access to a presence of God that is life-changing and transformative? I know the church I grew up in, like it was all about just wait until you die someday. How not compelling is that? Well, and of course we don't care about the earth. Of course we don't care about making racial inequality right now. Well, God's gonna fix it all. What a terrible way to live, amen? No, we, Jesus gave us the example in his prayer that we are to pray on earth as it is in heaven. We're not supposed to wait. I love that idea. This is what happens when we just engage in scripture and take a little section. Like sometimes it can feel so daunting to read the word of God, like take 10 verses and go, what is a theme and what stirs interest in me? That's the scripture coming alive for us. So when I read a section of scripture, I try and figure out like, what's the big idea of this thing? I'll be honest, there are like seven big ideas in these 10 verses because it's that intricate. But I've picked one for today. It's gonna come up on the screen. So the big idea for today from this section of scripture If we are followers of Jesus, and in this verse it says in Christ, that's the same thing. We believe that grace we've been given has nothing to do with anything we've done or become on our own. Christians should walk around with more humility, grace, and kindness than any other people group on the earth. That's what I take away from this section of scripture. This is the main idea I see in this section of scripture. And here's the why of why I think that's so important. Is that at all how the world sees us today? Do the people you know who have a hard time with religion, maybe some of you here who have a hard time with religion, think that Christians are walking around with more humility, grace, and kindness than any other people group on the planet? Is that at all how American evangelical Christianity is seen in our world today? Friends, we need a reboot stat. We have lost our way. Good news, so had the first century church, so we're not alone or crazy. 
but we still need a reboot. And that starts by acknowledging that we are not where we need to be. It starts by saying that this is so important, this idea of humility, and that no one can boast, and that it is by grace alone. It's so important to stop there and go, we should just walk the earth, leaving people in awe at our humility. And I think actually, at least the friends who I talk to who don't believe in any of this, they would say the exact opposite is true. They would say, you know what's nauseating about Christians? They walk the earth with an arrogance that is unfounded and unreal. They walk in judgment of everyone else. Do you hear any judgment in this section from Ephesians? You actually hear, you cannot judge because you've got nothing to, of where you are by yourself. Humility is, I think, at the core of our reboot. I think this takes uh, the form of knowledge humility. I think this takes the form of humility about our stature. The privilege we are born into should be at the forefront of our thought about the mercy and grace we interact with the world with. Paul, who I mentioned, wrote this uh, letter to the Ephesians. In another one of his letters, he takes this knowledge humility thing so seriously. It's in his first letter to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians. He says, all I know when I was with you, all I've claimed to know, so he's saying all I have knowledge of is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul wrote half of the New Testament. He wrote all of the dogma that has caused religion to be what it is for thousands of years. He wrote all of that. And he's saying, let me boil my knowledge down to one thing only. Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's all I claim to know. When Paul, the father of dogma and the writer of half of the New Testament says, hey, if you have to distill it all, let me distill it for you. Lest you think I have all the answers. All I really know is Jesus and his grace, and it changed me. That's all I really know. That should drive us to a place of humility for ourselves. The problem that I've experienced in 27 years of engagement in the church is that when religion doesn't know the answer, it either gives simplistic answers condemns the question asker or lies. That is my experience with religion. Simplistic answer condemns the question asker or lies. When I was growing up, uh, I grew up in a very conservative church home. My youngest sister, Cassandra, uh, was very bright growing up. And she was fascinated by dinosaurs at a very young age. So she's doing all this research, all this reading on dinosaurs. Wicked smart kid. This is back when you had to go to the library to research. All this research on dinosaurs. And she gets to church and is told over and over for years that's all made up. Scientists are putting the fossils under the ground to throw us off because we grew up in a church that was a new earth church that could only, the earth could only be 7,000 years old. My sister is a devout atheist. Is there any surprise that she decided that religion had no place for her as someone who thought deeply about science and the world that gave her a 7,000-year answer and told her that scientists were running around burying fossils to throw them off the case? 
religion, when it lacks humility, it lies. It lied to her. I'm reading right now uh, Carl Sagan's Pale Blue Dot. Um, if you want to understand with humility our place in the world, this is a fantastic book. I realize there's not many pastors who would encourage you to read an atheist writer about space and our place in it, but it is, I would say my faith has come to a point where this is profoundly meaningful to me at experiencing the vastness of our God and our creator. So uh, I'm reading this right now, and here's, uh, he quotes a 16th century theologian because there was a lot of tension in the 16th century around science. But to affirm the sun is really fixed in the center of the heavens and that the earth revolves very swiftly around the sun is a dangerous thing. Not only irritating the theologians and philosophers, but injuring our holy faith and making the sacred scripture false. 1600s, if the earth is revolving around the sun, our faith is a sham. That was the answer of religion. Then something crazy happens about 1837. We get a, micros a, 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 a telescope that can see far enough to realize, oh, that's actually how it works. What's crazy is the church that started here and built this building started about 30 years after that discovery. How cool we're still meeting here. How cool we can have this conversation this many years later and hold in tension those ideas. So I'm, I'm reading Sagan, and I asked my son Gabe if I could say this, because I would never, now that they're teenagers, I did when they were younger, I would tell stories about them without their permission, and I don't do that anymore now. So my son Gabe, um, about a year and a half ago or so, came to me and said, hey, Dad, I want you to know that what you believe in and your faith is not what I believe. And uh, I don't know what I believe, but it's, I'm not just signing on for what you've raised me in. I said, awesome. Let's walk that journey together. I've, like, I spent 25 years at that point walking people through questions and holding intention, faith, and doubt, and great. So part of why I read things like Sagan and Hitchens and different writers is to engage in conversations with my son as he's figuring out what faith even looks like for him. In the spirit of this conversation, how far do you think he and I would get in these conversations if I take on the mindset of an apologetic where I'm going to convince him of the truth of scripture? I can tell you how far that, Gabe, how far would that go? <laughs> In true teenage form, he doesn't speak out loud. He just shakes his head. <laughs> Occasionally, I get a grunt, and that's a really meaningful day with a teenager. No, it, it would go nowhere, right? But what if I engage with Gabe, and I try and learn what he's learning? We're reading, uh, I read a book recently, and he's reading it called God by Reza Aslan. A historical understanding of the deity figures throughout history. Amazing book. Phenomenal book. What if instead I engage with Gabe with humility? What if I engage with Gabe and celebrate his amazing questions he's asking that I had to wait till my mid-20s to ask and he's asking at 15? What if instead I give him space where I let my faith be a faith 
not a certainty. What if we stop trying to certainty people into our faith and let it stay in the mystery and stop trying to convince? What if that's the place our humility came from? Is not needing certainty, but needing faith. Isn't that actually the essence and foundation of our faith? Isn't it in the very name? When I look back through this text that we had up there a minute ago, there are four qualities that are called out to summarize in verses four, five, seven, and eight. Four qualities of God's character that I think have a lot to say to us today. The four qualities are love, mercy, grace, and kindness. What if the church, the global church, the American evangelical church were described in these four terms? What do you think would happen in our communities, in our neighborhoods, with our friends, in our schools? If people would say, well, I don't know about everything they believe, but here's what I'll tell you. They're loving, they show mercy and grace, and they're really kind. What would happen in our communities? There's a contrast in this text with the way of the world and the way of God. My challenge right now for the global and specifically American churches, there's no contrast anymore. Let me read you an example. John Stott, who, uh, again, one of my favorite theologians for understanding text, he wrote these words in 1978. So it's about this text that we just read. So both words age and world express a whole social volume system which is alien to God. Okay, so he's saying the world is alien to God in this text in Ephesians 2. He goes on to write, wherever human beings are being dehumanized by political oppression or bureaucratic tyranny, by an outlook that is secular, repudiating God, amoral, repudiating absolutes, or materialistic, glorifying the consumer market, by poverty, hunger, or unemployment, by racial discrimination, or by any form of injustice, there we can detect the subhuman values of this age and this world. Their influence is pervasive. People tend not to have a mind of their own, but to surrender to the pop culture of television and glossy magazines. This is cultural bondage. Okay, like true, true moment for us all? That sounds very much like the American church today. Certainly the public representation you see on the news and the talking heads. In 1978, John Stott said, let me tell you the antithesis of the kingdom of God. And he describes what I often see in religion today. This whole verse, this whole section is telling us these are opposite things. There's a contrast between the way of the world and the way of God. And as much as I would like to rally against the collective failure of the church, how do collective failures always begin? How is every macro issue in our world started? Individuals. We don't like that part, especially now. We are good at uh, taking to the streets for macro issues without adjust adjusting or addressing the micro issues. Let's start with us. So I want to take it a little more personal. Yes, we need to solve the macro. Yes, the global church. Yes, the American church 
It is broken and needs a reboot to realign with the humility that this text calls us to. But what does it look for us as individuals to take on the qualities of God as his people? What does it look like for us to be people of love, mercy, grace, and kindness? What does it look like for us to live humbly? The age-old question, are we willing to be the change on an individual level to see the change at a macro level? It starts with us. It starts with me. And it's almost like social media isn't going to fix it, guys. It's almost like a post isn't going to change hearts and minds. I don't know, maybe we're still there. It's almost like relationship and being people of love, mercy, grace, and kindness, representing humility in every circle we engage in, it's almost like that's gonna be where the change happens, not pictures and posts. So what does an operating system reboot look like? I believe it begins with knowledge, humility. I believe it begins with our primary focus, people of Jesus being love, mercy, grace, and kindness. Just take on the attributes of God in these verses. I also believe it starts with overcoming fear with courage. What if the system doesn't come back on right? What if the reboot doesn't leave me with the answers I thought I had. It starts with the fear of staying outweighing the fear of what might be in the future. For the church, yes. For us, yes. For the past few weeks as I've prepared for this message, I, I have my little note cards. I'm like old school. No iPads up here. These are just note cards. My last one is called My Reboot because I've been trying. It's kind of a choose-your-own-adventure. I've been trying to decide how far to go in the authenticity of this moment. But... A part of why I feel like I need to go a little further is because I think people experience the church as not being a place it's okay to say, I'm not okay. I have a friend right now who's going through just the decimation of his marriage because of some really bad choices. And I've been walking that journey with him for months, and he... Uh, he said to me recently, I just wish this was a place, uh, the church was a place I could bring this. I wish my pastor was a person I could talk to this about. Oh, what have we become, friends? Where his life is hanging in the balance, he's trying so hard to make good choices, and he doesn't feel like the church will ever be okay with him again if they know who he's been. Is there anything more antithetical to Ephesians 2 than that going on in churches today? So in 2018, I hit a reboot moment in my life. I was in a movie theater of all places. 
Uh, I was seeing the movie Rocket Man. You guys seen that? Elton John story? Fantastic movie. Love Elton John. Old school. And there's a scene in the movie where he's in a, a group therapy session, and he says the words, I realized I've hated myself every day of my life. And I was in the theater with my wife, Christina, and my sister and brother-in-law, and I almost had to leave. I realized that was true of me. I couldn't think of a day I hadn't hated myself. And I've been in church my whole life. I thought I had a pretty realistic understanding of who I was. And I just had to go, I need a reboot on all of it. So I sat with my counselor. I sat with some close friends. And I said, I am not okay. I remember I texted my counselor. I'm like, hey, something broke open in me yesterday at a movie. <laughs> I think we need a session. I'm not okay. And I would grab drinks with a friend, and I would say, hey, I just need you to know I'm not okay. I'm not all right. And in that process, I started to unpack a deep wound that I didn't feel safe or okay to ever tell the church. That when I was 11 years old, I was sexually abused by a pastor. And I stuffed it for 36 years. Because I didn't feel like that would ever be okay to share. What will people think? Will they see me different? So I started to process that deep wound that I had never shared with anyone, with my counselor. I brought my family into it. They were so loving and caring of me in it. But I remember one night, I was sitting on my son Will's bed. We were doing tuck-in. And he just looks at me and he goes, hey, Dad, why didn't you ever do anything about that guy who hurt you? Oh, and he's like, hit me. Because my son was 11 at the time, the same age I was when I was abused. I said, that's a great question, Will. And that started a moment in me where I decided to do something about it. And I wrote him a letter, and I wrote his denomination a letter. And I started a two-year journey to hold him accountable. The board of that denomination removed all of his, unanimously voted to remove his pastoral duties and responsibilities, his licensing. It was quite a journey for my family and I. And I've actually never talked about it publicly in part because I was just scared of what people will think of me. Am I now just the abused guy? Am I just, am I just narrowly seen? Now? Is the church even ready for these conversations? Because this stuff happens in church all the time. So for the church to be willing to go there, they have to acknowledge my value and worth and that I'm, I've, got a, I've got a pretty good thing going. I've bled in some influential circles. I'm not someone they can write off. Frankly, in our broken world today, I'm a white male, so they can't write it off. That's just the wrong of how it is. 
Sometimes we need, because we're still so broken racially and in gender, that we need a white male to say, it's okay to say you're not okay, and it's okay to say you were abused, and maybe that'll give voice to other people who've been scared to say it. I wish it weren't that way, but that's the way it is. I don't share this story for gratuitous purposes. I promise. The last thing I wanted to do was share this story today. I didn't even write it down because I kept begging God not to ask me to. Or I would have like polished my story how I was going to share it. Because that's what communicators do, right? I just feel like maybe someone in this room needs to be reminded it's okay to not be okay. And maybe that's actually the restorative start in the church is for a group of people that just go, we're not okay, and if you're not okay, you belong here. But I'm, don't care. But I do this, don't care. Come here if you wanna be in a place that it's okay to not be okay. Because I don't know anything that more describes the humility of, of, of Ephesians chapter two than a place that just tells people they're okay. Because by Christ alone are we forgiven and made whole not of our own works, so that no one can boast. So maybe you need that reminder today. Maybe it was just for me to finally have the courage to share something that I've been scared to death to share for years. I don't know. But I know we're going to take communion, and we're going to sing this song that I love, Nothing But the Blood. What can wash away my sin? To Paul's words, all I know is Jesus Christ and him crucified. And not just sins, what can heal the wounds to make them scars so they're not open wounds anymore? That's the place I've gotten to come through in my journey with my being a survivor of abuse. But some of you here, you might have the open wounds still. I believe God is a God of love in our wounded place. And I believe his church is designed to be a place that says it's okay to not be okay. So I wanna invite the team up. They're gonna lead us in worship in this song. They're gonna walk us through communion, which is just a celebration of God's presence among us in a way that's transformational. Let me pray for us as we step into that time. God, would you reboot your church to be a place of humility, of love, grace, kindness? Would you let it start in our own hearts? Would you let this be one of those places, this room, this community, where we can come before you and with each other and say, none of us are okay. We're all not okay, but we're in the work of being made okay by you. We love you and we need you, Jesus. In your name, amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.